Um, I'm absolutely delighted today to have Megan with me. I hope I said that correctly. We've been trying. I'm still learning <laughs> here in Ireland how to pronounce names. Quiva being the hardest, I think, that I have found. Um, but there are quite a few. But I'm absolutely loving it. So I don't know how it happened. But I'm supposed to be half Australian and I'm in Ireland and Mac is Irish and he's in Australia. But there you go. That's life. Um, now, I was thinking about how we met. And that was when I was on the White Gap board, Mac, um, back when you That's were right. the financial head of the company. Because actually, you come out of finance, don't you? I do. Yeah, that's my background. Um, that's right. Yeah, it feels like a, another a few lifetimes ago when we met back in yes. the Wygap Mord. Yeah, I was a CFO there for a couple of years. And um, that's my qualification. That's my background. I've been qualified there with, in Dublin originally um, with uh, PwC, who would be one of the kind of big four people. And uh, they're kind of well known around. So I like to say I'm a recovering accountant these days. So uh, it's a great discipline to have, great foundation, but it's more fun when you kind of step out of it, to be honest, than it was when I was in it. I'm sure you apply a lot of the learnings there because you left the organization to start Tashi and you're the co-founder of Tashi. And that's really what I wanted to talk to you about today. Um, and just to tell people what it is, but you're going to tell us more. It's a no-code platform for travel marketplaces. Um, and that's really exciting because Breakthrough is all about talking to people who do things differently. But what I'd like to know is, through your career, how did you get to the point of starting Tashi? What got you here from being a recovering accountant to open to starting Tashi? Yeah, um, like all stories, I guess it's it's a pretty long one, but I'll keep it short for the benefit of the people listening. Um, so the reason I'd ended up in YGAP and the reason we met was because I had gone out, I'd gone and started my own business at the time, which was then called Clean Travel. It was going to be a marketplace for ethical tours and adventures around the world. Um, and I was doing that part-time and doing kind of YGAP stuff as well and um, helping out there until I went full-time into kind of what was then clean travel. Um, like all businesses, again, there's like lots of twists and turns, pivots, uh, changes of mind. What you think is an amazing idea and only you are the only one in the world that has it. Turns out within six months, you can't turn a corner by bumping into someone else who has the exact same idea as you. So that was a, a shock to the system for sure. Uh, kind of starting out really excited about something, but kind of realizing um, a couple of months in that, yeah, it wasn't unique and wasn't as unique rather. and wasn't going to be what I wanted it to be. And what Tashi kind of evolved into was initially kind of from helping build uh, tools and kind of software for people who are selling travel rather than trying to sell travel itself. And kind of fast forward a couple of years. Now what we're doing is that we kind of took from working with individual people to then actually turning around and then working with, uh, so me, me and you would have met in 2017 originally, I think it was, and um, we now sell to the max of 2017. So we sell to the, the entrepreneurs building the next Airbnb, the people who want to build their own travel marketplace um, and sell, you know, um, ex luau's in Hawaii or um, bus tours around Ireland or Aboriginal experiences here in Australia. So people who kind of focus on that they're our customer now too instead they're 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 me effectively six years ago almost uh, which is how many people are involved in tashi uh, working so for we're you, still, with you so at this stage we're still pretty small business we've got eight of us on uh, in the team so myself and tom um are the co-founders and then we've got the rest of the team kind of spread around the world really because our some of our biggest customers are in the us and the middle east and so 
We have people based in Indonesia, in India, in, in Africa too. We can have a lot of early customers in Africa too, um, and Latin America too. We've got a customer support person over there. So um, good and bad in that we have people we have people in different time zones um, mm. around the world, but then bad as well in that uh, the phone never really does stop kind of like buzzing with notifications and things like that. Mm. I want to come back to how you run a business like that, but I first want to talk about Tashi itself. Now, is Tashi a Tibetan word? Is that right? What does it mean? So Tashi is, it's it's a Tibetan word that means good fortune and auspicious, or so I'm led to believe. Um, it's a common name for people as well. Like it's a, it's a male name and a female name too in, in kind of Tibetan cultures, be that in Tibet, the country itself, or in Bhutan or in Nepal, where I lived for a couple of years. Um, so when I was in Nepal, I was there for about three years running an anti-child trafficking charity at the time. And I would have come across a lot of people called Tashi, worked with a lot of like a lot with communities who are from kind of like the, those kind of Himalayan border regions with Tibet. And the reason we we picked it was one, I had that kind of personal connection to the, the name and that kind of background. And then really interestingly, Tom, my co-founder, had a nephew called Tashi. And okay. so we were kind of like workshopping different names and kind of, you know, what we could do with it. And that one, we kept coming back to that one, really, um, because of the, we both had this kind of personal connection to, to the name. And um, really importantly, it's a very easy name to say, because um, oh, as, yeah. as I said, we have a lot of, we had a lot of our early customers in kind of um, Southern Af Africa, so South Africa, Botswana, Namibia. And so they could say it really easily, as well as the guys in kind of Latin America too. So. That was a win. It was a lot easier to say than my name, for example. <laughs> it is easier, but your name's not one of the hardest ones, I promise you, um, especially your first name. Now, you speak basic Nepali, which is just incredible. Um, I don't think people knew that about you, but I want to know where's the ethical side of the travel? What, what does it do differently to a normal place that's not ethical? Yeah, so... The ethical kind of element pillar of what we do really, again, comes up, comes back from a lot of the stuff that I would have done originally in Nepal. And a lot of our early customers were, our very first customer was, for example, this network of five or 600 rural homestays in um, remote India called Not On Map. They work with like really um, remote people. We work with other organizations like Solomar International who do kind of USAID funded tourism transformation projects in the Maldives or um, Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And so... In terms of what Tashi wants to do, it's really about us kind of, it's a bit of a highfalutin word, but like democratize access to really advanced technology. And so it's about giving the tools that best in class, world-class organizations of the world might use and putting them in the hands of kind of ultimately local organizations um, that are run for local people, for local people. Um, and that's kind of really what a big part of what we did. We, our original name was Clean Travel, um, as I mentioned. And we kind of, we changed the name originally uh, from that because we felt, uh, quite frankly, it wasn't a very, um, kind of didn't roll off the, off the tongue and didn't kind of fit really. Uh, it was mm. too restrictive in terms of kind of what we became as a company really. And Tashi was a better fit. How do you find um, these people uh, in India and so on? How do you do, how do they find you? How, how do you bring it all together? Yeah, it's so good. Um, good question. Lots of different ways. I guess those early customers we would have would have connected to from personal connections or kind of met them through my original work or from networking and things like that around the world. Um, and these days, we've, as with everything, you know, you build up a bit of a reputation in the space. We're, we're a pretty specific platform for specific people. 
in that we are a marketplace builder for travel marketplaces. Mm -hmm. And so when you're, again, if, it, if you take my, myself back to Mac 2017, when I was starting my marketplace um, for sustainable tourism experiences, what was I doing at the time? I was going around and I was researching comparable marketplaces, checking out what they did, who they used, what platforms, what technologies they did. So that's why today, if you launch on Tashio for our, you know, the customers that we have, they all have then the bottom of their website, which 99% um, of people won't notice, but they'll have a powered by Tashi kind of little line down the bottom. Because okay. we know that the people who are building uh, future versions are like um, comparable or um, in different sections or different geos around the world, they'll be doing research on their, what they deem to be the competitors. And that's how they might find us through that. So that's been one of our most powerful acquisition channels, just that powered by Tashi line. Then also because we're very specific in what we do, we generate kind of content around that in terms of blogs and blog posts, newsletters, things like that. Um, so that if you were so inclined to Google the word, you know, software for travel marketplace, we'll be number one on Google kind of around the world organically, which is really valuable to us. Are you happy with where the business is at now, how it's grown, how it's developed, or was COVID a real curveball for you? Where are we now? Yeah, obviously COVID was not ideal. Um, I went full time in 2019. We would have got. We went through a a program kind of almost this time four years ago with Booking.com called the Booking Cares program, where they they were giving out like two million euros worth of grants to sustainable tourism organizations. Wow. So we were one of ten recipients, um, along with some like amazing other organizations um, as well, and. We were going really gung-ho into 2020. It was kind of all systems go, uh, really investing in everything until um, uh, COVID came along and torpedoed kind of affected what we were doing. And so unfortunately, you know, we had to let some people go. A lot of people go at the time and kind of go into like um, hermit mode for that kind of year or two and just kind of keep plugging away, I suppose. Um, so that was definitely a challenge. And are we happy where we are now? Obviously, we'd love to be doing more, bigger, all that kind of thing. But we're happy we're here because there's a lot of people who aren't, yeah. uh, including a lot of those alumni from that program that I mentioned that, that mm -hmm. were our kind of colleagues in that booking program four years ago. I want to say almost half of them are no longer um, operating. And so we're kind of one of a select few. And we, we've we had some kind of wins along the way. We've had some near misses. We, for example, in 2021, we were like like finals, finalists to get into the, the YC Combinator, which is hosted over in uh, San Francisco every year. And um, we thought we were in until we weren't. And that was very kind of devastating at the time. Um, but looking back now, it might be lucky that we didn't because, you know, as we all know now, it was very kind of like foamy kind of atmosphere at the time. We would have raised too much money um, and kind of had to shoot for goals and, you know, do make decisions that weren't in our kind of longer term and uh, future's kind of best interest. So, we're self-sustaining, you know, self-funded, you know, as most businesses should do, be or rather uh, these days, and we're kind of happy to be running our own boat and really not have those kind of external pressures. So um, we're growing and um, always you don't want to be growing faster, but we're kind of, we've kind of reached a bit of maturity as a business, I think, whereby we've been going for a couple of years now and um, we're kind of learning to be content with our lot or kind of be a bit more patient than we might've been a few years ago. So that's interesting. So I want you now to talk to the startup and entrepreneurial people out there about the lessons you've learned about being an entrepreneur, exactly some of these things you've said. What kind of the key things so far 
from all the adversities, all the decisions, near misses, hits, fundraising. Yeah. <laughs> Where to start? I'm a bit of a, yeah, I've definitely come out the other end. So sort of a bit of context for this too. I have done at least four startup accelerators. Okay. So the one, the booking.com one, which was in Amsterdam for a month, which is a phenomenal experience and three here in Australia. And so having gone through four startup accelerators, I come out the other end and raise a small bit of like accelerator funding or venture capital funding from, you know, two of the biggest VC companies uh, funds here in Australia. I would say that um, ultimately you have to be your own big fan, your own fan and your own advocate when it comes to the fundraising and um, that it won't come easy uh, in terms of that funding. And you also want to be really careful about what you do. Um, so if I even take a step further back in terms of building the business itself, I was definitely guilty of, as I said, coming up with this amazing idea that I thought was amazing and surely everyone else would agree with that and not going to maybe testing the hypothesis enough initially. And ultimately, one of the best kind of like lines that I've ever heard, um, and it's not mine, it's from, I think it's from Paul Graham, maybe one of the founders of YC, that he says basically build something that people want. And, yeah. and you know, it's a really simple phrase. And yeah. you could spend hours unpacking it, right? You know, you could yeah. spend all day debating that simple line, but fundamentally comes back to that and not really being ready too much to the one idea, being ready to, ready to the objective. And for me, starting the business was the objective was to build a business that I could bring anywhere. I could live anywhere. I'm talking to you now from the sunshine coast and in, uh, in Australia, which doesn't have a lot of like opportunities nearby, but I was able to bring myself and my family and my business up here with me. That was always my objective. And the kind of the tactic or the way I might achieve that was totally malleable. Like I didn't really care too much about that. So I think that was one of the main kind of learnings I've had um, or being reinforced I think over the years. It's not an easy journey, is it? No, definitely not. It's, it's that what is, classic. What are some of the mindsets people need? Oh, uh, yeah. I think just the mindset people need to understand is that it's probably not going to work out, actually. And what one and are definitely and it's probably definitely not going to work out the way you expect. And it's going to take ten times longer than how, how long you take. It's actually there was one of the lines that has always stuck me for you. One of the accelerators that I did. And the guy who was running it, uh, this guy called Ben Hood, and he had had this business that had grown really large. And he was, I think he was the CEO at the time. He was going to have listed on the ASX or the Australian Stock Exchange at the time. And he was pushing, pushing, pushing. There was all these kind of red tape kept going. And he told us what, he basically, one of those people, he remortgaged his house to like invest it on the business, got his wife on board to do that. And by the time they listed on the ASX, it was too late and the kind of the momentum had gone and it ended up tanking. And I think they own it. I don't know if they lost their house or what happened, but oh. long story short, he told his wife they were going to be rich and then they weren't and they ended up divorced. Oh. And he told us this story in the first day of that program and that really hit home. That really hit hard for me. And then what he told us after that was over the course of this call, it was a couple of month program. Over the course of this month uh, program, if you come away from this deciding that this business is started is not for you, then we would have done our job. Then we would have done you like a really big favor. And I remember thinking at the time, not it didn't really fully hit home, but now that I look back, I think, wow, that, what an amazing thing to say and what a really good advice to have um, for someone to come in. It's quite a ballsy thing to say to a kind of room full of like energetic entrepreneurs who kind of only see the silver lining, but to come in with that kind of really hard realism, I thought was um, yeah really valuable. I think that is so valuable. Are you putting some of your time back in to talk to, to young entrepreneurs and startups? 
I do, yeah, for sure. I would not formally, I would say, but for naturally being in the space, being in the travel space and with my background too, I, I definitely have people reach out all the time. And also through, my, through our work, of course, as I said, what we do is we sell a tool to, um, we have many entrepreneurs, we sell to like more established businesses as well as people kind of starting out. And um, definitely it's kind of an interesting one where um, our sales pitch is effectively like, don't go out and raise a hundred grand to build a technology platform that you could get from us for, you know, yeah. a percentage of that effectively, like keep the money to invest, give us, you know, a, we're a software uh, a SaaS business. So pay us a percentage every year, every month. And then keep that kind of, if you've got, if you're lucky enough to have a bit of capital upfront, keep that to invest it in marketing and sales to ensure that you kind of reach that product market fit as soon as possible, because ultimately and people will kind of go with you because of the experiences or your brand. They won't come with you because of technology. Airbnb might be the most slickest, amazing kind of technology platform in the world. But if the house is listed on it, were crap. And um, if the, the whole experience of the actual travel was not good, then people wouldn't care. You're so right. And I think that's good advice generally for anybody starting a business. There are lots of SaaS platforms, not just in travel. And I always yeah. say to people, think about the capabilities you need. And what do you need to own and what do you need to have access to? What do you need to partner, right? Because do what you're good at, isn't it? Um, I've seen people burn through their funding way too fast. Mike, I have a question for you. And I, I know that it, it, you might, might be an interesting one for you, but um, it seems that women don't get the same access to funding or not selling themselves well enough as entrepreneurs. From what I've seen through YGAP, maybe, I don't know if it's the same in travel, do you have thoughts yeah, about I, that and advice for them? I think it's definitely a trend that's, um, I would say it's good that it's noticed and it's definitely been talked about a lot. And of course our mutual um, and Manita Ray does a lot of work in that space in terms of like really showcasing amazing women and kind of like bringing, bringing that spotlight to the funding gap in women. In terms of why they don't get it, Obviously, being a white male, I, I probably feel a, a bit of an imposter system kind of like pontificating on the different reasons. I can't claim to be an expert on it. But what I would say is that in startup funding, and we, we I experienced it myself, there's a lot of bullshit. There's mm. a lot of like grandstanding bullshit, arrogance. And that's why you got it because you got to get up in three minutes, hit a lot of points and tell people why you're the hottest thing since sliced bread, basically, and why they should be lucky to work with you. And as an Irish person who probably doesn't really come from that kind of culture, that was definitely an adjustment that I've had to make. And I think there could be something there in terms of mm. maybe women not being feeling comfortable as well in terms of like playing that role, because it is yeah. a role that people it is play. A role. And, it's, yeah. and it's definitely something that you hear and you see it. I see it myself in terms of different people I interact with that. And again, it's a cliche or a stereotype, but like they're, they're kind of like that kind of, well, Ivy League educated American male is just so arrogant, quite frankly. Confident. That's why they, confident. 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 Yeah. You might, I, I would call it arrogance. And yes, that they're uh, yeah, talking yeah, absolutely, absolutely ramesh, as we say in Ireland a lot of the time. Um, but they're able to kind of like project that um, onto the people and they get mm. heard. Mm. And then ultimately, when people are giving funding, they, they're making a bet on um, the person effectively and, and so if they feel that this person is delusional enough to think they might succeed then maybe they will and, and that's I, one that's one element no, of it. and I, I think the I other think one oh, sorry right. go ahead no no i think you're absolutely right though keep going i was going to say just one other thing that is, is noticeable too is that um i think there's though again in the investment space um 
traditionally there's been a lot more males again men kind of involved in it and they don't necessarily have an appreciation for yeah. um women's products women's markets women as a consumer and that's where that's kind of like a blind spot for them as well so interesting i've just watched barbie last night with my husband and daughters it's still quite yeah. fresh in my mind. i did too i thought was, i just watched it last night too i thought it was amazing it was amazing and my husband showed up in his big shirt which is what i think every single oh, father on the planet should be doing <laughs> right now listen i i just want to pivot a bit it's a fantastic business and well done but how do you run for people who are running these virtual how do you do remote and virtual leadership with a team in different times and talk to us about the leadership component of that the yeah, team look, component it's, it's definitely challenging i'm not going to say it's perfect um we we've always been kind of remote even before covid we were kind of remote from day one and although it's being a self-funded kind of scrappy startup we had to be cost conscious and so that's why we hire people overseas in terms of some of our development that gets done and then the we want people in time zones that are beside our customers too um so we do sim some simple things like daily stand-ups you know we try and if you're if your team is in australia you do a daily stand-up at like 8 or 9 a.m in the morning we do is that we do ours at 4 p.m in the day because that's the time zone that kind of works best for other people and um, so we do that every day as kind of a bit of a check-in and we try and do like a happy hour type of thing as well and um, once a month as well where there's no kind of set agenda and um, we kind of have shoot the um, the shit, as we say, um, a bit of, um, as well, to kind of have a bit of an informal thing, which can be hard when you're dealing with different cultures as well, of course, people communicating. And then we use we use like a, a central project management tool called Basecamp for all our document sharing, all our projects, okay. all our timelines, all our kind of chats, let's say. That's obviously really integral in terms of kind of like um, communicating with each other. You know, the fancy term for it is like asynchronous communication, whereby... Um, you know, we're not able to, we don't need to be kind of talking at the same time to have a conversation. It can happen over a number of hours or days. I think that's fantastic. I, I have used Basecamp before and it's actually a fantastic tool. Um, yeah. I like all of that. Uh, that would create a sense of belonging, wouldn't it? Because that's something everybody's telling me they're really struggling with. Um, but I think it's perfectly, you know, I also work mainly remotely with many teams in many clients at the same time. And and some of them I met for the first time and, and Mac, the first thing they said to me is you're much taller on Zoom. But anyway, that's just something <laughs> we have to cope with. Um, where do people find you if they want to do business with you? How do they um, learn about what you're doing? So Tashi.travel is the domain for, for our business, um, straight to the point. That's always a good way to kind of drop in and to kind of see what we're about. And um, we have a number on there, a live chat as well, that we kind of engage with really actively. Um, if it's not myself or Tom or... Um, Divya, one of our team members, will kind of chat to people on that too. Um, obviously, I'm not too active on Twitter, but I, I do technically have a, a profile at, at McCartan uh, underscore, and um, where people kind of like from now and, now and again, people kind of communicate or Mac at Tashi.travel as well. So um, we're lucky that, or I'm kind of always very open to people yeah, reaching out, especially people who are kind of doing that journey that you, you've done because it's so close to home and um, for sure, there's so many lessons that I had to learn the hard way that I'm um, always happy to pass on. You know, uh, it can be tough communicating that with some people. Not everyone, wants to, never, not everyone wants to hear it too, and you don't necessarily always want to come across as the kind of like the grumpy, older kind of long tooth uh, guy who's kind of come, gone through the um, the spin cycle or whatever and come out the other side. 
Oh, no, I'm sounding like that now on menopause. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I'm warning everybody about menopause. Um, we have a fun question that we end with. Yeah. Which is completely different, which is if you were stranded on an island by yourself, what's the one thing you couldn't live without? Oh, good question. Uh, yeah, I'll, probably, I'll try not to overthink it. Um, I think it'll, it'll be my little handy pocket Swiss army knife. Because I think oh. it might come in handy on the on the on the on the island. It's like one of those tiny little things that yeah. I have it on my keys. I've had it for years, ah. and it has like a little, a tiny little scissors, a tiny little knife, and it's amazing how often that comes in handy. Um, I tell you, you what, that would be fantastic. I haven't thought about that. I was actually telling someone the other day about my Swiss Army knife, because yeah. you cannot believe this. In 1992, when I backpacked for a year, the one thing my dad gave me was his Swiss Army knife to take with. And oh. you know what? If I think back, I've traveled everywhere with this. I must have gone through airports with it in my hand luggage. <laughs> and absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's amazing. And yeah, nowadays, I've actually. You do get away with that. Like, what, have you ever forgotten to take it off and, and gotten it? Uh, yeah. A lot, a lot. Well, and the thing is, because it's on my keys, it, ah. I, I'll, I'll be honest and say I'm probably on my third one of them now because I've, I've lost at least two of them to the airport security because yeah. I keep forgetting. But for every time it got caught, there's like 10 times where it didn't get caught. I'm, I'm better these days of remembering to take it off. Wow. Okay. Well, don't listen to that if you're an airport security person. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> listen, any final thoughts for people out there that just things that you think would be interesting for people to know, to like not be scared, to be courageous, to be curious? What, what would you say to people in 2023 when things feel overwhelming with AI, the war, the economy, COVID? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, maybe particularly to do with AI that there's been a lot of talk about how it's kind of like, you know, transform um, careers. It's kind of like do a lot of people out of work. I think maybe traditionally there's a lot of value in being really specialist. So I'm an accountant. I would have been a banking originally or that kind of thing. These days, you know, with Tashi, I do a lot of the sales calls. I do a lot of the communications, the marketing, the copy, that kind of stuff. I'm a lot more kind of rounded. And the, the nucleus of that was when I did leave my job as an accountant to kind of live in Nepal for three years running that charity where I went in as like, was the classic kind of, I went for six weeks that came, became six months and before and then it became three years. And it was kind of like, maybe even touching on, you know, the theme of your podcast, but like breaking out of that kind of mold of being that kind of like rigid accountant whereby you kind of like looked at soft skills and inverted commas as these kind of fluffy things that we we used to we used to do like a workshop on it like every six months in six months and people would see about soft skills but when you go into a career and you kind of go into business you realize that it's the soft skills that differentiate you from you know the other 99 out of 100 people it's that kind of way to communicate and empathize with people and me kind of taking that step to kind of step away from accounting into that a totally different world both geographically and um culturally and career-wise and um, really kind of transformed my my life personally and professionally because I wouldn't be doing Tashi if I hadn't done that before because I do to kind of breaking out of that kind of mold kind of opened my eyes to kind of what else I could do um while still keeping that kind of you know foundation like I said that's fantastic and you know I think for me it's just you're one of those people I've just interviewed several leaders for my new book um, leadership in the future of work and you, you just have a lot of those mindsets and practices because they're not personality and they're not they're not competencies. They're people who are curious. They're people yeah. who want to solve problems and they're willing to stay with the problem longer than other people. So they're gritty. 
right? They, they keep that yeah. long-term goal, even though they change all the subordinate goals of to getting there, right? They just keep on changing yeah, and learning sure. and moving and testing and failing. And they could yeah. normally, most of them can tell me at 20 mistakes they make quite comfortably, whereas other people just don't want to talk about one thing they've done wrong. They go like, oh, one guy said to me, I lost millions. And then I did this thing and I lost millions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, comfortably. Yeah, I think well yeah, I guess that comes from a confidence to that. I don't know the guy, obviously, but he's probably comfortable saying that because he was able to make it back or he knows that he will make it back, back I guess. But, um, and that's and that's too that when you when you're when you have a startup when you're an entrepreneur, yeah, listen, if you're going to get knocked down the first, are you going to stay down the first time you get knocked down? Like, you've yeah. no chance, like, you have to just yeah. keep getting up and sticking your neck out, really. And, um, with, with the faith that it's going to work out, and it is, it is actually a balance to know, you know there's difference between perseverance and just being kind of mm. blind to reality as well, you know, yeah. or sorry, there's a thin line between both of those things. So um, yeah, that's interesting though. About those traits, I think that's definitely something I've, I've, I've observed as well that yeah. hard work, determination and grit can make up for a lot of stuff. Absolutely. And then I think you're also right. If I just close this out, the empathy, the interpersonal skills, you know, the, that, that the client centeredness, um, all of those things added to those things um, is the thing that for me differentiates those that I can see make it in the end and those who don't. Um, thank yeah. you so much for sharing all of that um, and for making the time to speak to us. No worries. It was a pleasure, Marine. Great to catch up again.